Welcome to episode three of the Charles C.W. Cook podcast. This is a surprise episode, a pop-up episode. Shocked even me. I hadn't planned to do this until Wednesday or Thursday. But I wrote a column on Friday that yielded a great deal of pushback. And in the course of arguing about it on Twitter, I asked my interlocutor if he wanted to come on the show and debate it there instead, much better for him, and he said yes, so that's what we're going to do. I'm also going to talk to Jeff Blehar about Supertramp's Breakfast in America album in the first color supplement part of the show, but before we get to all of that, I'm pleased to say this show is now available on Google Podcasts. Finally, they came through, so all you need to do is open your app, Search the Charles C.W. Cook podcast and hit that subscribe button. If you do, you'll be entered automatically into a prize draw to win absolutely nothing. And now, an argument. So on Friday, I wrote a piece at National Review complaining about the president. Biden had made an announcement that uh, he would be pardoning anyone who is currently in federal prison for mere marijuana possession. And I took exception to this, not because I think that our marijuana laws are desirable. They're not. Not because I think anyone should be in prison for marijuana possession. I don't. Not even, in fact, because I think that our drug laws generally at the federal level are constitutional. Uh, I don't but because the laws in question are still on the books. And while it is clear that the president has a pardon power, while that pardon power is somewhat vaguely written, and while the Supreme Court has ruled that the pardon power is non-justiciable, there is a clear conflict here between the president's authority to issue pardons and his responsibility under Article 2 to take care that the laws be faithfully executed, because those laws have not been uh, repealed. And I cannot see how a president uh, can take an existing law, a duly passed law, and decide on his own that he's going to let all the people out of prison who've been Uh, convicted under it, and going forward, uh, decline to prioritize it without violating that provision within Article 2. But my column, of course, generated all sorts of responses and and criticisms. And one of those came from Clark Neely, who's a senior vice president for legal studies at the Cato Institute. So I thought I would invite him on the podcast to explain to me why I'm wrong. So welcome, Clark. Why am I wrong? (laughs) <laughs> well, listen, I appreciate you having me on here. And I'm going to I'm going to start off by saying, you know, perhaps I'm wrong. Um this is something about which reasonable people can disagree. So, I think it's just, you know, useful to to explore both sides and see which way things shake out. Um 
the the probably the meat of the issue is that the president's pardon power is plenary. There's no textual limit in the Constitution um, on the use of the pardon power, and so there's. I would say fairly widespread consensus among scholars and and judges and justices to the extent they've weighed in here that um, there are not really legal limits on the ability of the president to use the pardon power. There are certainly prudential limits. And it is clear that some uses of the pardon power uh, would uh, merit uh, impeachment. Um, there was a great deal of discussion about this throughout our history and including at the founding um, that uses of the pardon power that were sort of nakedly corrupt, you know, uh, either done uh, in response to a bribe or to enable president's cronies to get off the hook would be an abuse of the pardon power and that impeachment would be an appropriate response. But the uh, validity of those pardons would not be subject to legal challenge. In other words, those people would get the benefit of the pardon. So I think that's where we are with this. The question really comes down to, um, was this an appropriate use uh, of the pardon power on President Biden's part, um, or was it an inappropriate uh, use of the pardon power? And if it's inappropriate, what is, what's our best response? So I personally think it's an appropriate response, and I can lay that out why I think that is, but I respect the fact that that um, you know, I respect your concern for the idea that if this becomes the norm, presidents can, in effect, uh, render uh, entire federal laws effectively unenforceable uh, without without support of, of our you know democratic uh, branch, and and that's concerning. I don't want to I don't want to suggest that it's not concerning. It is, but in this instance, um, I think the balance tips the other way. So I want to hear why you think the balance sits the other way. Before we get there, is there another example of a president doing this when the law in question is still on the books? Because I, I got a few emails from people, and the three things that they, they pointed to were Jimmy Carter's mass pardon of Vietnam War-era draft dodges, uh, and then Jefferson with the Sedition Act, the first Sedition Act, and Harding with the second Sedition Act. But in all of those cases, the, the laws in question had been repealed. I mean, with Carter, the Vietnam War's been over for two years, the draft's been ended for four years, the Gulf of Tonkin resolution has been uh, gone from the books for six years. With Jefferson, the first Sedition Act expired on the last day of John Adams's term, and with Harding, the Sedition Act was repealed in December of 1920 before Harding came in. But with these laws... They're still there. I mean, unfortunately, I think they're an absolute abomination, but but they're still there. Do, do you know of any other circumstance in which this has happened while the law was still being debated, disputed? Uh, that is a really challenging question. The only thing I think that could come close, and look, I'm I'm a you know I'm a lawyer, not a historian, so let's get that up front. Um, my understanding is that President uh, Washington uh, pardoned. Uh, participants um, in the Whiskey Rebellion uh, in 1794 uh, for whatever crimes may have been involved. Um, and some had been apparently um, indicted for treason. So I I would say provisionally and subject to doing more research, it is possible that, that the amnesty that President Washington uh, extended to participants in the Whiskey Rebellion may have involved uh, pardoning people for the violation of laws that were still on the books. But the thrust of your point, I think, is, is absolutely fair, which is that that this is this would be very much the exception rather than the rule. And it would be an unusual exercise of the pardon power um, to uh, pardon people uh, for violations of a law that remains 
on the books. I think, I think fairness, we have to say that. Okay, so why is it a good idea nevertheless? Well, I think there's uh, kind of three main reasons that I would advance. Uh, the first is that uh, the, the possession of marijuana is not something that is properly within the, the scope of, of Congress's enumerated powers. And I think you alluded to this a moment ago. Um, so growing a plant in your backyard um, is not an act that uh, Congress has authority to regulate let alone to criminalize. Now, the Supreme Court has held otherwise um, in a 2005 case um, where, it, as you know, those of you who follow constitutional law won't be surprised to find out, um, the uh, court sort of conjured uh, this uh, power under the Commerce Clause, the power to regulate commerce among the states, augmented with the necessary proper clause, um, and, and found, I think, an entirely imaginary power um, on the part of the um, uh, the Congress to to criminalize the non-commercial, purely intrastate uh, possession of marijuana. Um, that decision, um, Raish v. Gonzalez, simply doesn't stand up to scrutiny. It's it's a preposterous decision, um, and um, and so that's the first point: is that the the law at issue here, for which the pardons have been granted, is just simply not defensible as a constitutional matter. Power. I'm sorry, Congress simply doesn't possess the power. Uh, the legitimate power, I should say. So that's point one. Point two um, is the one I'm particularly interested in, which is the um, uh, I, basically it is the practical elimination of of criminal jury trials from our system. Um, the Constitution is just bristling um, with protections and information and prescriptions for how uh, criminal charges are to be adjudicated. Half the Bill of Rights is about how criminal charges are to be adjudicated, um, and yet today. Um, their own criminal jury trials are almost extinct. They're almost gone from our system. Last year, 98.3% of all criminal convictions at the federal level were obtained, not through constitutionally prescribed jury trials, but instead through guilty pleas. And those guilty pleas, of course, are usually the result of uh, a plea bargain and often an extraordinarily coercive uh, process. So I think it's quite unlikely that the, uh, the, the, the federal government would have chosen to pursue uh, any uh, charges, any any cases involving uh, sort of simple marijuana possession, um, if they had had to um, uh, use the constitutionally uh, prescribed procedure for, for adjudicating those, which is, of course, a, a jury trial. We've seen prosecutors literally get laughed out of court by uh, jurors uh, who have attempted um, to follow through on, on marijuana possession charges. And I think that to a pretty high degree of certainty, DOJ would have um, uh, not brought these cases, would not have followed through on these cases if they had to culminate um, in a jury trial. And then finally, um, you know, there's a growing supermajority of people in this country um, who believe that uh, uh, marijuana possession should no longer be criminalized. Um, and Congress has been utterly unresponsive um, to those uh, to that uh, significant change in, in public opinion. And I think pretty clearly because Congress is so beholden to the law enforcement lobby and particularly the U.S. Department of Justice. Um, basically, Congress doesn't do anything without the approval of the U.S. Department of Justice, which of course gets it exactly backwards. Um, and so I'm not saying that any one of those rationales uh, by itself is dispositive here, but I think when you combine the three of them, a pretty solid case can be made that um, for the president to pardon uh, people who've been convicted of violating this law that shouldn't be on the books, would certainly not be enforced, but for this extra constitutional procedure for, for resolving charges, um, and that flies in the face of, of uh, longstanding, not longstanding, but but significant majority opinion, um, 
it's not going to keep me up at night. So I, I think that's perhaps the only place we disagree is is the last one because I'm absolutely with you on the commerce clause. I think Wickard v. Filburn was a disaster. I think Raich was even worse. The federal government clearly does not have this power under the Constitution. And if the Supreme Court, now this would cause great upheaval, but if the Supreme Court were to review those decisions and strike them down, and with them much of what the federal government does, I would lose precisely no sleep. And I also agree with you on your second point, criminal jury trials. I hate the way uh, that in this sphere, the uh, modern, and it's not just uh, prosecutors, it's, uh, it's also the administrative state ha- has got around these, uh, these requirements. But my problem is twofold. One, Joe Biden doesn't believe any of that. I mean, Joe Biden spent his entire career in Congress voting for drug laws, writing drug laws in many cases. And if you look at his preference when it comes to judicial picks, he wants people who love Wickard v. Filburn, who love Gonzalez v. Resch. I mean, I, I, I'm not telling you anything you don't know. I read through the amicus briefs once for Gonzalez v. Resch, and the thing that astonished me was how many progressive groups that staunchly oppose federal marijuana laws nevertheless wanted the court to side with the federal government because they were aware that if the federal government had its power stripped away in that area, then it might have its power stripped away in other areas. And, you know, Joe Biden, not that he signed an amicus brief, but Joe Biden is one of those people. Um, And, you know, the fact that it is deeply unpopular now to put people in prison for marijuana is a really good thing politically. It's something that I've wanted for, for years. You know, I wrote a book in 2015. I said, we should get rid of the whole drug war. People often send me emails. Do you mean heroin too? Yeah, I mean heroin too. Not just because I think that the heroin laws are just as unconstitutional as the others, but because I don't think they work. I actually think we, we cause all sorts of horrendous negative externalities and, and unintended consequences. But We don't have a system where we poll the majority of people and then say, well, if Congress doesn't act, then the president gets to. And for the president to say, this is popular, therefore I can do it, when he doesn't believe in any of the underlying constitutional objections that you just outlined, strikes me as a really alarming precedent and probably a precedent that the Democratic Party is going to regret. Because if if this is how we do things now, there's nothing to stop the next Republican president from doing the same thing with, say, gun crimes, where people who haven't actually done anything violent, people who haven't hurt anyone, people who have a, a barrel that's too long, or a gun that was transferred in violation of the law, or a, a purchase that involved a 4473 form on which they lied, you know, those people could quite easily be pardoned, and the federal government could say, we're not going to go forward uh, with our existing caseload. And you and I would probably agree that while the laws are unconstitutional in the first place and the plea bargains involved are grotesque, if not illegal, and maybe you'd even find a majority for it. But if that's the approach, then we don't have a Congress anymore, right? Well, I I wouldn't go that far. Uh, And we get a bit metaphysical here, I would say, right? Because, um, you know, imagine you're very ill and uh, somehow a chicken has been granted the power to write prescriptions and a chicken manages to peck out exactly the right prescription for whatever your illness is. Do you refuse to take the medicine just because it was written by a chicken and not a doctor? Uh, You know, we have a president here, I think, who's fundamentally incapable uh, of, of, uh, you know, sort of higher level 
constitutional reasoning or analysis. And, you know, frankly, probably already always has been. I'm not, this is not really a slam about his age. I just don't think he was ever particularly capable of, of, of this kind of level of constitutional analysis. And so the fact that that, or maybe I shouldn't say the fact, but but the the possibility that this president is not capable, really, of 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 thinking through the constitutionality uh, of the law at issue, does that render his correct decision, or arguably correct decision, um, that uh, the law should not be enforced? Uh, invalid or does it undermine it? I, that's a really challenging question, I think. Uh, so, so he's doing something that it sounds like you and I would both do if we were president. We would just do it for better reasons. Um, and um, so, it's I, I I credit your concerns. I really do. Uh, on the other hand, what I'm looking at uh, from one perspective is a correct result that was reached on the basis of uh, faulty analysis. But it's not clear to me that Joe Biden will ever reach uh, a correct result on the basis of anything other than faulty analysis because I'm not sure he. He's capable of uh, of any other sort of analysis. So, uh, well, I wouldn't. I wouldn't do it. I should say because I I would think that my responsibility to execute the laws overrode my belief that the law was a bad idea or even that it was unconstitutional. That's an area that's very tricky. I accept. I mean, what do you do if you're in the position where you've taken an oath to uphold the law, but you think that after 80 years of judicial review that is wrong. Yep. <laughs> the law is yep. illegal. But I don't want to live in an anarchic system. And, and in one sense, I do think it matters. I, I take your point about the chicken and the prescription, but I do think it matters. I mean, for example, if the plaintiffs in the Dobbs case had gone into the Supreme Court and said, we would like you to reverse Roe because we just think abortion is morally wrong. And then the court had said, okay, and issued a one-line opinion that said abortion is morally wrong, therefore the federal government has no authority. The federal judiciary has no authority over it. And I, I would have been really disappointed by that. I, I think it matters enormously at what the majority opinion and what the dissents in that case said, right? I mean, so yeah, I think it probably does matter that the president um, has to make the right argument, even if he doesn't, you know, even if he doesn't believe it. Okay, well, that's, you know, that is a, um, I would say, a principled position. Uh, I'm not sure that I agree with it. I'd probably have to think it through some more. Uh, let me give you another example. Um, I, I think there's a reason why um, the Constitution requires many of our uh, sort of political actors to swear an oath to the Constitution. Uh, and as I'm sure you recall, in, in the middle of the 20th century, we had an unfortunate incident here where uh American citizens who happened to be of Japanese ancestry were rounded up and put in camps. Um, I would say that if I had been, for example, the attorney general, so that was not a, that was not a law that was enacted by Congress. That was an executive order. Uh, but if I were attorney general and the president ordered me to uh, enforce that order, uh, I would refuse. I would say, no, I've sworn an oath to the Constitution. I, I will not enforce that order. And uh, if necessary, here's my resignation. The fact that the Supreme Court upheld the law um, in an absolutely bogus and disgraceful opinion, which, by the way, uh, was, was I think, in part a result of, of now well-documented malfeasance on the Department of Justice's part. They withheld, they deliberately withheld a, a report that undercut um, their argument by the time the law had gotten to the Supreme Court. But um, so as an independent constitutional actor, uh, I would say no. And I, and I would do the same thing if I were president uh, and someone said, look, you have to enforce this 
this uh, law that Congress has passed, if if I believe that that law is unconstitutional, and even if the Supreme Court says that it is constitutional, um, I think the stronger argument here is that I have, uh, as president, an independent obligation to assess the constitutionality of that law. Now, if the Supreme Court has said that a law is unconstitutional, I don't get to second guess that. What I do get to second guess, and what I must second guess, is if the Supreme Court has said that the law is constitutional. I still have to make an independent assessment of that, as does every actor who has sworn an oath to the Constitution. I think the Constitution was designed that way, and I don't think it leads to anarchy. What it what it reinforces is this essentially super majoritarian nature of our constitution. We do not have a majoritarian constitution. We have a super majoritarian constitution. And in order to be enforceable, a policy has to meet the constitutional standards of the executive branch, the legislature, and the judiciary. And if any one of those uh, concludes that the law is not constitutional, then it either doesn't get passed, it doesn't get enforced, or it gets struck down. I actually think that is the way our constitution was designed, and I think it's highly desirable to have a super majoritarian rather than a purely majoritarian constitution. To make sure I understand this argument fully, the case here is that yes, the constitution says in Article 2 that the president must take care that the laws be faithfully executed, and that if the president doesn't do that, that is obviously a violation of the constitution. But there are all sorts of other parts of the constitution too. And so you can't just put that element above all of the others. And if you're the president, you therefore have to weigh that with looking at the other provisions and ensuring that how you're behaving is constitutionally sound. Yeah, I mean, I think implicit in the requirement that the president take care that the laws be faithfully executed is that it's, we're not talking about every law, we're talking about valid laws, we're talking about laws that do not offend the Constitution. Uh, the question then would be, well, does the president get to make an independent determination of which laws do or don't offend the Constitution? I personally think the stronger uh, view is that the president not only can make that determination, but has a constitutional duty to make that independent determination. Although I will acknowledge that there is, I would say, a minority view that says that that once uh, the uh, uh, you know basically once the Supreme Court has said, look, this law is constitutional, um, then the president is it's not appropriate for a member of the executive branch to second guess that decision. I think that that is not a persuasive position. I think there's a reason why it's the majority. I'm sorry, the minority uh, view. So y there is some tension. I acknowledge that, but I don't think it's a particularly close call. The president uh, not only has no constitutional duty to enforce a, a law that he or she believes to be unconstitutional. Um, I think to the contrary, he or she has a duty not to enforce that law. And again, I recognize that Joe Biden did not make that finding here, but he should have. And, and if he was sort of capable of high level constitutional reasoning, perhaps he would. Now, you said you don't think that would cause chaos. Now, is that a, a, a judgment based on the current nature of our two major political parties? I, I ask because if I became president, which would itself be a constitutional violation because I wasn't born here, but if I became president, I would probably think the vast majority of the laws that I were expected to enforce were unconstitutional. I basically agree with you on the scope of the Commerce Clause. And because I think the Commerce Clause has been bastardized, I therefore think the vast majority of what the executive branch is asked to do is unconstitutional. And if I were president, and I took the approach you're describing... I would cause chaos, wouldn't I? I mean, there is a scope for chaos here. Um, I think you might attempt to commit to create chaos. You would not succeed. Uh, among other things, um, 
if you if you tried to do that with any law that people actually cared about, uh, then to a pretty high degree of certainty, there would be uh, not only threats of impeachment, uh, but also um, a significant chunk of your senior staff would resign en masse uh, in protest. And um, uh, and some might even, you know, defy uh, the order in some way. So I think it, it, it would be difficult, actually, for the president to follow through on this. You might try. I doubt you would succeed. Um, and I, I think it's no accident that uh, the the law at issue here with the Biden pardon is a law where there is literally nothing at stake. And and that's not a coincidence, right? I mean, if if uh, you know Biden was trying to suspend the enforcement of a law that actually mattered uh, to to people, you know, uh, let's say a law uh, that now he's you know let's say he says you know what anybody who wants to can come to the United States. We're just not going to look at people's backgrounds or do any kind of a security check. Uh, I'm quite confident that that one way or another um, that attempt. Uh, to sort of override policy would be resisted successfully. Uh, by contrast, I think that that the reason why Biden is almost certainly going to sort of quote unquote get away with this, you know, cross the board part, not only because the Constitution gives him plenary authority, but everybody kind of recognizes that there's literally zero at stake here in the in the non enforcement of this law. If we were talking about a different law or a different legal regime where there was actually something at stake, I think we would see resistance, and I would guess that 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 the president would be much much more cautious about uh, you know pardoning people who had violated a law that anybody actually cares about. All right, so let's finish by talking about the law on the merits, get away from the structural argument. This is a terrible law, and uh, as you say, most people are opposed to it now, even in states that have traditionally been in favor of the uh, prohibition of marijuana, th these these laws are becoming less and less popular. How many people, though, are actually affected by Biden's promise? It seems pretty low. It is. We don't know the exact number. Um, it does not apply, for example, to people who are still serving uh, prison sentences. Uh, and so on one level, the number of people affected and the, the way they're affected is probably pretty low. But I think the more important point here is the symbolic effect of this law um, for a president to, to, in effect, convey to Congress his uh, disdain or his, his lack of support uh, for a law that Congress has repeatedly failed um, to repeal is a, I think, a quite significant act. Uh, and watching the uniform or nearly uniform support of the country, I mean, this is, we are more polarized, uh, of course, as a country than we have been in at least, you know, 60 years, maybe longer. And as far as I can tell, the only person who objects on po policy grounds to what Joe Biden has done here is Senator Tom Cotton, and who cares what he thinks? Uh, so it's, uh, it, it's, it's, I think, significant that virtually nobody seems to actually care or think that there's anything problematic uh, with a, let's say, if, if the federal law against the possession of marijuana were, were either suspended, repealed tomorrow, or the executive branch just, uh, instead of just sort of winking at it, just literally as a matter of policy said, yeah, we're not enforcing this anymore. Um, again, almost nobody would care except for maybe one senator from Arkansas. So I think that's significant. I think it's quite significant. Uh, and I'm glad that, that we've gotten a chance to see that we all basically agree from a policy standpoint that this is the right thing to do, even if it was done in the wrong way. You're not a pundit and you're not a soothsayer either, but does this give you hope that we'll see some change now in the statute books? 
Yeah, that, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm struggling with, with my my sense of hope. I don't want to succumb to the triumph of hope over experience. But I will say, um, any honest look at the scheduling of marijuana, as I'm sure you know, marijuana is considered uh, what's called a Schedule One drug, which means that it has a high propensity for addiction and no legitimate medical use. So it's listed on the same schedule, for example, with uh, uh, heroin. Um, that is that that is preposterous. That just does not withstand any sort of, uh, you know, scrutiny. So if uh, uh, the secretary of HHS, who has been instructed to reconsider uh, the scheduling of marijuana, takes an honest look at it, uh, then marijuana uh, will be either descheduled or at least rescheduled. And I think that will be significant, among other things, that will uh, open up a great deal more opportunity uh, for research into medical uses. I think that could be the beginning of the unraveling of federal marijuana policy, and that will probably trickle down to the remaining uh, states. And then the question is, does it jump from there uh, to, um, to other currently illegal drugs? And if so, which ones? And I would not predict that, but I think probably there's never been a greater chance of that happening than right now. All right. Well, I hope you are right. And I thank you so much for coming on the podcast and debating this. Uh, it is a complicated question. And I struggle too, especially with the question of what to do when you think a law is unconstitutional, and you've taken an oath to the Constitution, as you say. So uh, that part, I, I think we're, we're probably closer than on the question of, of congressional prerogatives. So thank you so much, uh, Clark Neely, Senior VP for Legal Studies at the Cato Institute. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on, Joy. This last part of the show is in color. So if you're listening in on your smartphone, make sure you've turned on that setting or you'll get it in black and white. It looks so much it looks so much more vivid like this. It does. I, I like it like this. It's well, as you can hear. I haven't introduced him yet, but that is Jeff Blehar of the Political Beats podcast. And uh, this week we're going to do music. This section, this color section will have you know, what I'm listening to, what I'm watching, what I'm building, what I'm reading, maybe even a golf cart section. But this week, we're going to return to a familiar album, at least familiar album for people who read my newsletter, because I have probably banged on about this twice, three times, maybe, certainly done it on, on other podcasts and on Twitter. And that is Supertramp's Breakfast in, Breakfast with? Breakfast in America, which was released in 1979, is that right? 1979, although it doesn't feel like a 1979 album. It feels like an album whose virtues belong more to the 1976 era, if you really want to get specific. I think it does, too. Uh, now, why is that? Now, why is that? I'll tell you that, because Supertramp was a band whose virtues were far more, I, I would say, British, songwriterly, and Beatle-like than a lot of you know what was then becoming the chart-topping successes in that late 70s era. We think of like um, you know the disco and stuff like that. And of course, a lot of people associate Supertramp with disco for no other reason than the falsettos and the high voices, which they think, okay, they make an analogy to their minds with the Bee Gees, who were another, uh, well, not British, but Commonwealth band that obviously made a big career shift midway through their career into something else. Meanwhile, Supertramp has always just basically been, you know, a, a, another songwriting duo who was who's kind of working, I would say, plowing that Lennon-McCartney furrow. Uh, they were recognized in their time, but it, it sometimes seems like they aren't recognized nearly as much as they should be these days. So here is uh, one way of looking at Supertramp, at least my way of looking at Supertramp, uh, and that is that while I like the songs that 
both members of the songwriting partnership penned. I really prefer one voice. Oh, and ironically enough, before I, you know, we joined the show, Charlie and I were talking about this. Saying I actually asked Charlie, I was like, listen, when it comes to Supertramp, are you a Rick Davis man or are you a Roger Hodgson fan? And I confessed that I was, um, well, I, I had a side as well, and I think we're on the same team here, aren't we? I think so, because all of my favorite Supertramp songs, and there are a bunch of them on this record, uh, are Roger Hodgson songs. Um, those being... Breakfast in America, Take the Long Way Home. And well, Give a Little Bit's not on this record, but that's another great Hodgson performance. But I'm surprised you didn't mention Lord It Is Mine because that's another one I would throw that out. That is a great song. That is a great song. So the the other reason I think maybe Supertramp gets associated with that uh, late 70s vibe, other than that they were in the late 70s, is because on Goodbye Stranger, you have that Shaft-style guitar mm-hmm. that that almost funk. funk-like wah-wah guitar. And you know that, that's not a creature of 1975. That's a creature of 78, 79, 80. But it's only on one song. It's not their thing. What their thing was, was the Wurlitzer, at least on this record. This is a Wurlitzer album. I would argue there's also, uh, you can make an argument it's one of the albums that uses clavinet best as well. <laughs> but that, that's actually primarily because of its use on just like a two really, really famous songs. But yeah, this is an electric keyboard-based album. And, and everything on it, you know, both both songwriter songs, are, this is all piano music. So I guess, you know, I, I always wonder why people who love Elton John don't know more about Supertramp because they are so much in that same vein. And of course, I feel like all of these guys, this is some as discussion that we had on our Beatles episode. All of them, you know, are drawing from the original well that was, you know, sprung forth by Paul McCartney on Hey Jude. Everything goes back to Hey Jude. I almost considered having you on to talk about Hey Jude because I know how much you love that. Next time. Next time. But so most people <laughs> will know the title track. I mean, the title track is very famous. Uh, it has famous lyrics. Take a look at my girlfriend is how it starts. Uh, it was sampled. I forget what the track was recently, but it was all over the airwaves once again. Was it Gym Class Heroes? Did they Did they take the... Mm-hmm. the beginning yeah. so everyone will know the the title track i absolutely love the title track and i i like it more than you so i'm going to talk about this what this uh does for me is sum up the band in their post 1977 iteration it has a fantastic melody it has pianos and uh synthesizers and harpsichords and then it has the part that you just don't get from any other band which is instrumentation that shocks you the first time you hear it. You you do not start hearing Breakfast in America expecting a clarinet solo. (laughs) You You don't at the beginning expect trombones and tubers in the background. And to me, this was why they were different because they had all of these, these weird, uh, ideas. Each member of the band was supposed to be a multi-instrumentalist. You know, they, they had the talent for wind instruments that they played themselves. You know, the Beatles used to get people in to, to play the orchestral parts. Well, Supertramp, you know, did it on their own. Right. I mean, we're, we're not recording a Supertramp episode here, obviously, you know, a political beats, maybe one day. Um, but I just have to point out that, you know, 
when you think of the band, you think of the two songwriters. You think of Davis and you think of Hodgson, but John Hellowell, he was the secret weapon of that band. He's the guy who played all the saxes and the reeds and the woodwinds, and he's the guy who adds all that color. <laughs> and he is, again, you know, I, I, I was joking, um, I, I joke periodically about how, like, you know, bands just don't know how to deploy a tasteful sax solo anymore. And you, you get about, you know, five or six of them on this record alone. The first half of this album is kind of almost ridiculously stacked in, in terms of like the famous tunes that you know. There's another one on side two that you'll also know. But uh, Breakfast in America, the title track, Gone Hollywood, it's the opener. You probably heard that one on the radio. But it's the two in between that define really super trim for me and I think for most uh, American listeners. And it's one of the reasons why I think it's interesting that you focused on that. I have no idea whether the UK chart um, you know, reputation of this album was different than in America. Because in America, you, you ask someone to talk about the band, they're going to say the title, you're going to say Goodbye Stranger, okay? That's a Rick Davis song. And I actually think it is his greatest achievement, especially when he starts singing like John, like Hodgson, you know, in the falsetto part. Uh, but the logical song, that's my pick as the one. It, it is both one of the most famous songs on this album, and it is my favorite song on the album. And, uh, you know, I think maybe at this point, I'm pretty familiar with the band's music, but I'd say it is the, my favorite song they've ever done. Uh, I confess uh, to being a rather dweeby, bookish, intellectual child uh, who didn't quite fit in with the rest of the world. I think you guys know where I'm going here with this. Uh, that lyric, you know, where this high-pitched guy who sang exactly like my singing voice would would you know late at night it comes on the radio and i hear him sing there are times when all the world's asleep the questions run too deep for such a simple man won't you please please tell me what we've learned i know it sounds absurd tell me who i am you hear that when you're 14 and it will probably change your life i think actually for the better in a lot of ways and there's an echo too, uh, because this is second uh, on the album, and it's in C minor. And then uh, Breakfast in America is two songs later, and it's in A minor. And the two of them sort of work together, even though they're not next to each other. The logical song, I think, introduces the album, not Gone Hollywood. Gone Hollywood's a weird song for an opener. It it's a bit of a one-off, right, man? Yeah. Whereas the logical song has a lot about it as a, as a, as a song, obviously with the vocal um, and with the production that says, yes, I'm on this album. Um, but but uh, you have missed one thing, Jeff, and, and that is the production. I mean, this is one of the best produced albums in history, right? I haven't missed it. I literally was driving my, my son home from school yesterday, which is when we were originally going to tape. And I was thinking, I got to remember to talk to Charlie about the production of this album because I know why he loves this album. For those of you who aren't aware, Charlie's guested on Political Beats twice. He was obviously on our... He's, both of them two-parters. Uh, he was on our Beatles episode way back when, and then he came back to do our Fleetwood Mac episode. Now, what unites those two bands when you think about it? What it is is Charlie's transparent love of perfect production technique. You know, we, Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, Abbey Road, uh, Rumors, Mirage, 
And then, yeah, Breakfast in America by, by Supertramp. It's one of the most immaculately produced albums, but immaculate sometimes can be a, a curse. You don't want something that sounds astringent or too clean or too perfect so that it's sapped of its emotion and its power and its strength. This is that that perfect British equilibrium of, of taste and reserve where not a note is out of place, not a not a drum beat sounds like it was mismiked and yet it still breathes and it feels like such a live group it's also a weird album i don't know well, you do know because i've told you privately um i've been doing this this project where i'm transferring my vinyl records onto digital mm-hmm. so that i can play them at any point you know i mean people say why don't you just play the vinyl records well i do but i can't play them in the car um i can't play them on airplanes and so on so i've been transferring my vinyl records in uh, really high uh, definition lossless audio over to digital and play them off a server in my house. And this was one of the ones that I was really excited about. I mean, Rumors was another one, Mirage was another one. But I was really, really excited about this. And you know what I learned, weirdly enough, what? is that this actually sounds better on the digital uh, transfer from 2002. <laughs> and it's so annoying. It's flat. The, the the vinyl maybe the vinyl record I have, which has, isn't particularly well played. Maybe it's just. Is a it bad an original or, pressing? Is it? Yeah. Or, hmm. But it, it's fine. But what really sparkles is the the Greg Calby uh, master tape transfer in two thousand and two, where they they said we're not doing the loudness war thing, you know, because a lot of those masters at that time people would go back, take these records from the 60s and 70s, use a brick wall limiter and just make them sound like Oasis. You look at the savagery they did to the Rolling Stones version of your discography back then. Oh, God, you've heard some of the worst brick walling on the planet. Right, so they didn't do this with this record. They left all the dynamic range in, and it just sparkles. And obviously, they haven't done anything to it because it's coming from the master tape. But the vinyl pressing um, was... Uh, uh, left a lot to be desired. And the track that for me just sums up the production and, and really is the, the masterpiece of the record and the, the record that on there that, that brings it all together is Take the Long Way Home, mm. uh, which, oh, is that an oof no? No, an it's oof? an oof. It's an oof, yes. <laughs> no, no, it's an oof, yes, because this is this is the Paul McCartney, the, the Paul McCartney kind of songwriting that Paul McCartney was doing less and less of during this era. This, this could have been I, I, okay, you want to hear like a weird head cannon in my mind, Charlie? This is the song that the Beatles should have recorded instead of Maxwell Silver Hammer for Abbey Road. Oh, yeah, it, it should have that. slotted into that number three slot because then the album would be perfect. <laughs> but yes, I love this song, and I don't know how anybody could object to it. Well, it's a brilliant song. It's it's magically recorded. It has that piano note at the beginning, and it sort of fades in, and and it has what you know. You mentioned Fleetwood Mac. Uh, it has what what the great Fleetwood Mac tracks have, which is a, there's a certain point in it when it's just pure joy. Everything is going on. It feels like it's running away on its own energy. Um, you know, the vocals. It ambles. Uh, it's a song that actually feels like it's just strolling along because of that that cadence of the the piano beat that that clomp. Right. Right. And this this is probably my favorite. Super Trump song actually, along with "Give a Little Bit," which is which is not on this record, and I imagine a lot of people think it's their favorite song. Except I assume it's uh, composer Roger Hodgson's wife, <laughs> <Of course. Right. laughs> yeah, 
Because when he was asked about it by music critics, you know they do this. They ask the Eagles, "What's Hotel California about? You know, what's what's so what's uh, fixing a hole about, right? And what's this song about, Roger?" And he said, "It's about not wanting to go home to my wife." <laughs> and this is his answer for for sort of seven years until he moves his family out of LA because everything's going wrong for him. I mean, <laughs> it was a little right. too honest there. You know, I think I think most people have been in that moment where you, you run out of the house after a long fight and you're like, I'm going to go on a drive and I'm going to take a long drive. And then when I come home, I'll have calmed down, which is really kind of what the song is basically about. Right. But it's the opposite of Hey Jude in the sense of, right. Hey Jude, he's saying this terrible things happened to you, but I will be there and help, you know? <laughs> no, instead, listen, give me some space. I really, yeah. I really, I gotta, I got, I'm, I'm, I'm suffocating in here. And yet to, to the, the bippiest, bounciest, boppiest beat. And I think that's one more reason why I feel it could fill in for Maxwell's on Abbey Road because, you know, that's supposed to be black humor. Well, this has kind of got a bleakly humorous kind of, once you understand what it's really about, it's a bit mordant. He is a little bit mordant, but um, that's the joy of this album as well. I mean, a lot of the songs are in minor keys, but they're happy. Yeah, just um, another nervous wreck. We, we're not talking about, you know, Rick Davis. He was actually a very good songwriter and a singer. It's like we just read the uh, the other half of the band out of the story because we're talking about what we love here. But, you know, just another nervous wreck is great. And everybody should, I, mean, I assume everybody already knows Goodbye Stranger and Gone Hollywood. These are all fine songs. Um, but, yeah, I, I, I do feel a little bad. You know, we can't talk about Breakfast in America and pretend that it was a one-man band. Here. It wasn't a one-man band at all. <laughs> nope. Um, but I just prefer that side of it. I do. Any more too. observations about Breakfast in America by Supertramp? Not until we finally, uh, you know, break our three-peat rule, Charlie. I don't know. Maybe we're going to have to wait a while. Well, actually, while you're here, why didn't you just tell people about your show who haven't heard of it well i mean for god's political beats you know we're hosted by national review yeah and the the title is somewhat ironic because we get people from the world of music from world of rather journalism politics commentary and such to talk about nothing political at all it was a, a, a show that was born of the idea that aren't we sick of actually having to talk about, well, what's Donald Trump, you know, tweeting about these days, back when he had a Twitter account. Um, and we wanted to focus on something that just brings us joy. So it's it's an, uh, a, an episodic show where we cover an artist every episode, uh, one of them, and we would do a full retrospective and a tribute to them with a guest who is a super fan of them as well. Now, as it turns out, both me and my co-host Scott Bertram are a pretty well read when it comes to music history so we're often fans of these groups as well sometimes we are enormous fans but you have three incredibly enthusiastic and thoughtful guests not only uh covering the great music that you may know or but more importantly, introducing you to stuff that you might never have heard of before, because that's the other thing we like to do. This is a celebration of the things that you might have forgotten and the music that's fallen through the cracks, trying to understand artists as they understood themselves, trying to separate it all from this hugger mugger of everyday politics. But the people you have on are in everyday politics. Yes, they usually are. You just uh, don't talk to them about that. Not at, no, you know, we actually have a, th- a rule about this. When an artist's music is undeniably political, we don't shy away from it. You can't talk about the clash without talking about like their commitment to revolutionary socialism, right? But 
we, in fact, the joke I was making on that show is that boy, Joe Strummer could actually sell me on communism because sometimes he's so convincing. <laughs> uh, I'm not fooled ultimately, but the, the commitment of that music is so powerful that it almost transcends your everyday politics. And that actually is kind of the fundamental argument we make on this show overall, that music speaks a different language than the language of everyday partisan politics. It speaks a higher at a higher and a lower register, on a higher and more elevated register intellectually, but also on a gut level, and then it hits you in an emotional place that that, that can't be touched by whatever somebody's you know babbling about in in the in the present moment, and that's something worth holding on to, especially because these days we we seem to be just you know importing our political views into every single part of our lives, and it's so deadening. Couldn't have put it better myself. All right, Jeff. Well, until you invite me back, if you invite me back to do another political beat, it's probably on Supertramp by the sounds of it. I will bid you adieu. I'm looking out of the window now, and the uh, trees are still swaying. So. As, as, I, as I always say, Charlie, uh, instead of inviting you back, we'll just get Jen Rubin. <laughs> well, she is an expert. She is on everything, <laughs> every time, and uh, usually, you know, from day to day, in different directions. You should exactly. You should do two shows. You record them three years apart, then put them back to back, and in one she'll love Super <laughs> Trump, and the other she'll hate Super Trump. <laughs> it's been great. Thanks for having me on. And that's it for this week. Thank you so much for joining us in this special surprise shock. Jump out of the cupboard. What's that over there? Episode of the Charles C. W. Cook podcast. We'll see you next time.